You are listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Madeline Watts, author of The Inland Sea. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So the novel opens with what is a very short prologue. I couldn't sleep at night. The heat rose in the evenings. The old bricks of the house absorbed it. And after dark, my bedroom felt as thick and quivering as an oven. Open windows didn't help. On the seven o'clock news, there was always somebody making a show of frying an egg on the asphalt of an outer suburb's driveway. Watch this, they would shout to the camera. Yoke slipped out onto the bitumen and sat trembling there beneath the burning Australian sun. The people on the news were always grinning, nearly naked but for a singlet or a pair of shorts, sweating into their sunglasses. Nobody ever ate the egg. By the time the fireworks had blown up over the harbour and the city was wasted and the new year begun, I had handed in my final papers and my academic life was behind me. The open wilderness of adulthood stretched ahead like so much wasteland. During the sleepless days of that last hot summer, I had no money and nothing to do, but the bus that left from Cleveland Street could get me to the beach in half an hour. The air along the coast in those months was full of seaweed and car exhaust and the fires that were burning on the edge of the city. Rounding the cliffs, I could walk through the parklands and along the ocean path to the secluded rocks and boat racks of Gordon's Bay. I passed weeks there, stretched out on a towel, reading novels and jumping into the deep water when the heat became unbearable. In the end, they would say that this January was the hottest month on record in the hottest year on record, although they've said that about every year since. But this was the last January I sweltered through before I left the city entirely. I don't know anything about those other summers. The heat wave broke with a storm. The squall bore down from the Pacific, sweeping southerly winds across the city and snatching frangipani flowers from their branches. The convulsion of the storm struck in a way that seemed only natural, following as it did the tense weeks that seemed to justify the punch to the back of the head, the child left locked in the back seat of the car, the missing girl. The morning after the storm arrived, I lay on the rocks beside the bay, and at last I was able to sleep. When I woke up, I was overheated, my body covered in sweat. I picked away down the rocks and surveyed the brown storm surge mucking up the edges of the water. I took a leap. The day was still, the rocks deserted. The splash could be heard all over the bay. I dived deep under the storm surge and closed my eyes and began to swim out. When I'd gone far enough into the depths, I turned and looked back to where I'd been. From above, the palms and bougainvillea erupted in great green and pink swarms from the cliff face like some madman's garden of Babylon. Seagulls circled overhead. I floated in the clear water in the middle of the bay and thought that I wouldn't be so afraid to be lost at sea. The smooth blue expanse couldn't hurt me, not the one I imagined stretching out for miles and miles. All the way east to Valparaiso, north to California, the tips of Alaska and Russia and Japan, and planeties away from here. The sun beat down. I treaded water and spread out my arms. And I observed just then, as though waking not out of, but into a nightmare, a long yellow and black thing swimming in the water. The novel found its present structure relatively late in the writing process, but it's divided into four seasons, but they're not the regular seasons. So... There was a book that was very influential when I was reading it by a California theorist called Mike Davis, who died, sadly, I think last year. And he wrote a book called Ecology of Fear. And he was the one that really first got me to think about the fact that if you're from a Mediterranean climate, they're defined by extremity in the way that when we think of the four seasons, we've been taught to think of harmony, that there is a sort of cycle of renewal, everything begins again. It's relatively gentle and it's relatively predictable. That's obviously no longer the case with climate change. But if you are from a Mediterranean climate, those places have always been 
defined by relative periods where nothing really happens and everything looks the same. And it might get a little bit colder, but it doesn't get very cold. And it might get quite hot, but it doesn't get deathly hot. But it is defined by these sort of cycles of extremity. So when I was thinking about where I was from, the things that were really important were fire, heat waves, floods, and then other things that occasionally happen that are very, very rare. So the book is divided into the first section, summer. The equivalent of summer is heat. And then there is flood, which does tend to happen sort of towards the beginning of autumn, particularly if there have been tropical cyclones in the north of the country. And then winter, I've been tremor. Australia is not somewhere that particularly experiences earthquakes. And so I was interested in introducing something, a sort of climactic form of extremity that doesn't happen very often. And then the end of the book, the springtime, is fire. So that was how it came into the sort of form, because I was interested in talking about the ways in which humans have created an idea of what nature should be in the way that we make out human culture and human meaning from the weather and our environments. And that that was not the case where I was from, and it's not the case anymore. So to undo some of that idea of the four seasons as harmonious. There was a particular kind of trip. We started this myth where the inland sea wasn't found, but this was John Oxley, who features as a sort of minor plot line in the book is convinced that it just has to be there. So he tells in his report back, he says, it, it's probably out there. I didn't find it. And that set off an enormous number of other European colonizers going out into the interior, sometimes with whale boats, trying to find this inland sea. And I became really interested in it because I was beginning to read a lot of environmental history and ecological history. I was also reading and very interested in violence against women and how violence kind of perpetuates itself over many generations. And there was something about this absolute belief in the inland sea, in this European sort of supremacy of their ideas about nature, their ideas about rationality, all of this stuff that sort of came from the Enlightenment that told them that they could see what was in front of them. So what they didn't see often and what I found really interesting, particularly in John Oxley's diaries, is they made no mention of the Indigenous Australian who were at the time being the subject of what continues to be a very long genocide. There is a sort of like founding myth in Australia that often gets talked about called Terra Nullius. The British decided that nobody was there. I've read enough to know that you can really fool yourself about what's in front of you. And so I'm very attentive. And it's a thing that I teach a lot in the creative writing classes I teach to really make sure that you can see what's in front of you. And so to see what is beautiful and wondrous and the things that we talk about as being beautiful and wondrous about nature, like waterfalls and sunsets and the first flowers of spring, but also to see what is repugnant or repulsive. So rats in New York City are also nature. The pollution, the scum in the river, the weeds, the things that are growing out between cement and pavers, they're all nature. It might not be the kind of nature that you want, but this idea that we want nature to be one thing when it's doing something else, I think is also a problem with the human imaginary of nature. And so I'm interested in just being aware of the thing that is around you. So if you are trying to make nature be a particular way, if you're trying to shape a place to be a particular thing, you risk not seeing some of the important things. The world of these essays and pieces of nonfiction that allowed them to jump from different things, which didn't necessarily seem like they all needed to be in the same shape. 
They built a container where they could put inside whatever they needed to put inside. And I was not encountering many novels that were doing the same thing. If something needed to be introduced, there was always some kind of narrative ruse. Somebody had to talk to another character who was an expert in something. Somebody needed to go somewhere or have an encounter. There always needed to be this sort of ruse, which... It's just, again, it's not how I experience life. And I think particularly in the way that we live life now, having phones and the internet available to us, we live in this multi-story world. I don't need to tell you how I know about the reaction to Liliana Cavani's The Night Porter because I read about it after I watched it. I just Googled stuff. So I can tell you, but nobody wants to write in a novel. And then she spent a while Googling. It's not satisfying narrative material. So one of the things I was teaching myself as I read The Inland Sea, and I think really committed to since, particularly in the second novel, is the need for different narrative forms. And for me, particularly, it was to do in fiction and do in the novel what I was finding that I could do in the essay. And I don't think I did it completely successfully with The Inland Sea. I think I have done it better with the second novel that I've just finished. And a lot of that came from, and I've talked about this a lot, that I I finished a first draft of The Inland Sea and then I set it aside and it was um, summer of 2016. And for me particularly, it was to do in fiction and do in the novel what I was finding that I could do in the essay. And I don't think I did it completely successfully with The Inland Sea. I think I have done it better with the second novel that I've just finished. And a lot of that came from, and I've talked about this a lot, that I I finished a first draft of The Inland Sea and then I set it aside and it was um, summer of 2016 and I read The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh and that was enormously important for me. And one of the things that Amitav Ghosh talks about is that the way that we have been writing novels and telling stories is just not fit for purpose. In terms of writing about climate change in particular, there are issues to do with time and believability. And he goes through all of these problems. Amitav Ghosh dismisses quite cruelly the importance of genre fiction and sci-fi, which I think is a slight problem with that book. But the message that I got out of that book is the importance of just finding new forms to tell stories. I teach creative writing at Columbia and I mostly teach undergraduates. And I see them coming to these questions about climate change and the environment with a lot of weight on their shoulders. And they often articulate this feeling that even culturally in the media, we've told them, you do it, you fix it. But I also take a lot of energy and hope from my students because they have this commitment and resilience. And there is, of course, this idea of eco-anxiety, I think, is often derided as not useful which I don't think is, again, not useful. It's just not useful because it's there. We all have it. And I think it's not about deriding people for being anxious or for worrying in a vague way about what will happen, what's going to happen. It's what you do with that and how you put that to some amount of furthering a conversation, to activism, to all sorts of things. But I think activism and art can intersect and intertwine, but art doesn't equal activism. I was deeply influenced by the books that I was reading growing up. And there is, in the English language world, there is a dominance of the UK and the US. Even in Australia, you are more likely to read novels about experiences from the UK and the US. 
And I began to feel as a late teenager that I was so familiar with literary representations of not just London, but Manchester and Edinburgh. And I knew so much about what it was like to live in New York and Boston and Chicago and <laughs> Los Angeles and all of these different cities that I had never been to at that point. And still have not been to a lot of the places I just listed. But there was very little that I found that told me the story of the place that I was living in. The arts are what tell us who we are. Arts are there for the soul and they make being alive worthwhile. And that was something that I was heartened to see people being slightly more aware of in the very early days of the pandemic. And so I guess hope to impress on people who are years younger than me, the importance of learning to think and the importance of making connection and the importance of finding a way to reach other people and communicate and connect with other people that isn't by design, but that is trying to be honest and complicated and complex because I truly believe that without those things, whatever future we can imagine for ourselves is going to be paltry and it won't be imaginative. And it, without the humanities and the arts, it doesn't make me feel hopeful about the future. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.